Lesson One: Basic Hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Today's guest is bassist John Patitucci. His new trio album with Joe Lovano and Brian Blade is called Remembrance, and it opens with Monk Train. My guest is bassist and composer John Patitucci. He's got a new album out with his trio called Remembrance, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great fun. My uh, my understanding is that this trio record came out of something that happened during a rehearsal for a quartet session. Is that right? Can yeah, you talk there about was that? a recording I did called Communion, which is a long time ago now, mm, seven or eight years or something like that. And that album had... A bunch of different people on it. There was a lot of different personnel, um, but Brian Blade played on a fair amount of that record. And um, there were two or three. I think there was a couple tunes that featured Joe with Brian and myself, and also Brad Meldow, and who played great. But Brad couldn't make the rehearsal, so there was a um, rehearsal at Joe's house that we did for those pieces that were going to involve Joe and Brian and Brad, actually. Brad, Brad wasn't there, so it was just the three of us. And the sound in Joe's room, like, you know, we went upstate to Joe's place. Joe has a beautiful room to play in, actually. They should just put some mics in there and a board and record in there because it's phenomenal. So the sound was so beautiful that day, and it just felt so great. And, I, you know, I've always felt really drawn to those recordings with... Um, you know, those beautiful recordings with Sonny Rollins' trio, whether it's the live one with Elvin and Wilberware or studio ones like uh, Freedom Suite with Oscar Pettiford and Max or uh, the Joe Henderson ones with Ron Carter and Al Foster, which are just yeah. amazing. So, there, you know, there's some 
definite historical trio recordings that have really meant a lot to me. So, you know, after that rehearsal that day, I was like, wow, boy, I would love to do a record like that with these guys. So I just kind of thought about it. I said, well, yeah, I definitely have to get to that someday, you know. Then every time we saw each other after that, we we remarked to each other, man, remember that rehearsal? Boy, you know. And obviously we had a ball playing on the record as a quartet as well. That was great. But there's something about trio for bass players and, of course, saxophone players and drummers. They, we tend to love that format because the orchestration is so open, and that's incredible. It, it gives space for such clarity of interaction. You can really hear the three individual voices, and, you know, there's something about it. There's a, there's a streamline uh, character to it. There's also, if you get guys like Brian and Joe, you can go anywhere in that format, and it can be very orchestral, it can be very sparse, it can be very dense. Um, you got a lot of different colors because they're so expressive. People can really hear what the bass is doing because there's a lot of air and space for you to really hear what the instrument is doing. And for a bass player, selfishly also, getting a sound, a really big, warm bass sound that you always kind of hear in your head, you can get it in a fuller way when there are less people in the orchestration. So there's a lot of pluses. So we finally got around to it. (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote, you know, a bunch of pieces for those guys, knowing that we were going to finally do this. And boy, it was fun. You've you've chosen to use this record uh, to to pay tribute, pay your respect to a lot of the greats, some of whom have gone before and some are still with us. Can you talk about why you made that decision on this album? Seeing as it was such a classic orchestration, that was part of the reason. Then the other thing was the fact that so many people seem to have been passing in the last five, six years. It's ridiculous. It's an alarming rate. The masters and people that I'm close to, people that I who are my heroes that I don't know very well also. And also the concept of remembrance, not only remembering them and honoring them, but also remembering to be present now and really treasuring the people that we have in our midst who've been around a long time who are still doing incredible stuff. So instead of waiting till later when they leave us to celebrate them, we should be celebrating them now as well. So there's that too. I want to ask you about uh, your relationships with these two players, starting with Brian Blade, who plays drums. And you and Brian have worked together for years, uh, both yeah. in your own groups and with Wayne uh, in, a, in a number of contexts. Uh, what is it about him that makes the two of you such a good fit? Wow. Um, he's a very special drummer, a very gifted musician overall. Like He's very musical in a way that's extraordinary. When you hear him play, you don't hear... It's not like some guys, when you hear them play, you hear them play drum licks, or they play drum... They always sound like a drummer. In, in a, and that sounds ridiculous to say it like that, but they, they sound very instrument-oriented in terms of the way they play, as opposed to somebody who's serving the music and who's orchestrating for the music always. Brian is always making his choices based on what the music should be, not on... What would be, what would sound, drumistic, or you know what I mean? What what would yeah, exactly. be the usually expected thing for a drummer to do? He doesn't operate on those, you know, on that wavelength. He's an incredible musician of extraordinary depth and knows all kind of music and can play anything. Uh, also a great songwriter, singer, everything. 
So when he plays, he's also connected to the tradition in an amazing way, sonically, not only stylistically to the real roots of jazz, but also sonically and the way he tunes the drums, the way he touches the drums, the way he does everything to me is special. And he listens so effortlessly, but very, he listens so closely to everything that's happening and responds in such a fluid way, not in a mimicking way, like, like, you know, some guys, if you play something and then they play it right back at you or something like that. It's not that. It's much more, it's on a much higher level. It's just really high musicianship and a lot of soul. It seems like in a trio setting, the demands on a drummer are particularly high because you mentioned all the air it gives you, all the space it gives you, but it seems like it would be easy to fill up too much of that if you weren't listening that well, closely. I, I guess the thing to, to remember is that everything you put into the space is going to be that much more important, you can say, because people can hear everything in that respect, and then it, it's great. you know. And you need somebody mature like Brian who knows that just because the space is there you should celebrate that space instead of being afraid of it and thinking, oh, man, we got to fill that. There's no piano now. There's no guitar. You know, that's what's kind of nice to me about the way the album breathes. It's a very relaxed-feeling record, one of my most... I mean, it really is intense in a lot of places, too. But there, I felt so relaxed playing because we did it on, all in the same room without headphones, we, because of the rapport we have with each other, because nobody was freaking out that there was this space we were enjoying the space together as opposed to reacting to it in a, in a negative way. Today, uh, today's my Westchester interview day. After I leave your house, I'm driving over to Steve Kuhn's house to talk to him about his oh. new uh, Coltrane recording. Yeah. And it's a complete coincidence, but both of you have albums which pay tribute to some of the greats who've gone before, uh, and both of you have the same saxophone player um, working with you. Uh, Joe's on Steve's album and on yours. Yeah. And, and we both have Train tributes on the record, too. Absolutely. Obviously, we're both... I mean, obviously, Steve played with Train, but uh, even though I didn't play with Train, I've... He's one of my biggest musical heroes um, of any genre of music. Uh, okay, then before I ask you about Joe, let me segue right into that. And in fact, as I'm looking at you, the entire time I'm looking at you over your shoulder is a painting of John Coltrane. Yeah. <laughs> so it uh, kind of drives that point home a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I didn't even think of that. It's yes, like the, the train in, room at the White House or something. That's right. <laughs> we're in the... We're in the um, we're in the, the dining room, and, and as you can see, that's a, a picture of my mother when she was very young. So uh, in this room, you have two, two, two pictures of people that are extremely important to me. There's my mom, and then there's Train. So 
<laughs> that says a lot right there. <laughs> I think it does. Uh, so talk about John Coltrane and, and what he Well, Train, um, spiritually, musically, groundbreaking, uh, what can you say? Total master. Incredible musical, musical heart and mind and soul. What a sound. And he influenced me a lot. Not just compositionally, but also the f- incredible vibe and feeling that his groups had. Um, his sound and his phrasing and his feeling, when he, the way he played. Uh, I can't even find words that are adequate because he's the type of musician, like when you hear Train, Train can make you cry. He's not just like, check me out, I'm super bad. I got all this stuff. It's way beyond that. It's way deeper than that. He's one of the only musicians that hits me that way, like even if he's playing really out and really passionate. You know, Billy Hart said it great once. He said, you know what, even Train, no matter what he's playing, almost sounds always like he's praying when he plays. Even if it's like interstellar space or something, there's this just beautiful, you know, soul-searching spiritual thing that he does, that he emanates. So, I mean, I could do a whole interview on that. So if I start opening that door, it's going to be... <laughs> and, and I love him. And, and you know, I... I um, and obviously, this record is also to remember Alice, too, because Alice passed right around the time Mike Brecker passed, within a day. So she's part of the remembrance, too. And, um, and I know Ravi, and I love his playing, too. Fantastic player. And he's really evolved a lot, too, you know. Um, so anyway, that's that. And in terms of Lovano... Yeah, and let's, I mean, let's put that in that context, knowing that uh, one of the most important musicians to you in any genre is John Coltrane, and knowing also because of your stature that you could choose from any saxophone player in the world, probably, to play on your record. Joe Lovano's the guy. Uh, let's talk about why. Well, the thing, the thing that would happen was... I didn't even try to go into, because there's so many great saxophone players that I love. I didn't even try to go, I mean, this thing happened so naturally. It was like that connection that we had with Joe and Brian and I was so strong. I I didn't even have to go through the painstaking thing of trying to figure out who I would want for a saxophone trio record. Because then you would drive yourself crazy. You, You couldn't settle. It would be difficult because there's so many great players. However, what happened in that day, that day was so deep, and it was a spiritual bond, too, and I've always felt that with Joe, too. Like, there was just something that, you know, was undeniable and that had to be revisited. So I I didn't entertain... He was the only one that, from the beginning, for this, because of what happened that day with Brian and Joe and I, it was a singular kind of thing. And uh, not that... I mean, obviously, there's so many great saxophone players that also have a gift and a voice. And, you know, um, I guess the other reason why many people are drawn, drawn to Joe is that he's a great improviser. He doesn't fall back on patterns or licks or he's more of an improviser. You know, and I'm spoiled. I play with Wayne Shorter all the time. Talk about one of the greatest improvisers and the greatest composer genius he's a genius you know and um i remember one time being on the road and we were on the road opposite and we heard joe and wayne dug joe and that's saying a lot because he doesn't really talk about that many other guys that's how it was just a very natural evolution there that joe would be the guy 
On this record, um, you play bass in a, in a lot of different ways as the as the foundational instrument of tunes. You also kind of come up into the middle or up into the the top, the foreground as a, as a solo instrument. Can you talk about the kind of your your approach to bass playing and how you how you balance the palette uh, that you have as a bass player? I like a lot of different kinds of music, and that's part of it. Um, I also deal with several instruments. You know, obviously there's the acoustic bass and all that it does. Uh, when you play it in a jazz way, pizzicato, or when you play classically with the bow, those are things that I've spent a long time working on and still still work on, obviously, because it's a never-ending thing. And then there's the electric bass in all its various forms, you know, that I've also been very close to now for many years. I mean, you know, I started playing, I'm going to be 50 in December. I started playing the electric bass when I was 10 and the acoustic bass when I was 15. So... Um, that's a lot of time with those instruments. That's a lot of connection. It's a lot of passion for those instruments. And um, the nice thing about this recording is also I could use some of the different colors to change up the sound. So it wasn't just the traditional acoustic bass, drums, and tenor the whole way. I wanted to change up the orchestration a little bit to give people some some different sounds so that it wouldn't just be okay, here's a tribute to the classic you know, tenor saxophone trio recordings, and we're just going to do exactly, try to do exactly what they did, because you know, there's not much point in doing that. I mean, obviously, those, those were you know, legendary recordings that you, know, you can't just chase those. It doesn't work. So I knew that I had to do something personal with this format. And for me personally, as an orchestrator, as a composer, my thing has always been that try to increase the palette, make it broader. So I use some different orchestrations on the record. Joe played some alto clarinet. I use the bow. There's even that string octet that comes out of nowhere. And electric bass. And it's various things as a groove instrument, as a chordal instrument, and as a, the solo piece on the end for Mike Brecker where it's just this kind of um, a chordal. It almost sounds like uh, 12-string guitars, and you know, it's very open sounding. That's my idea of how to use all the instruments and, and you know, try to make it, you know, the choices are bit made on different colors and to get different sounds. Um, you know, sometimes people react differently, you know, in a funny way to my recordings because of the diversity and the, all that. Sometimes they, I think it frustrates them that it's not one thing the whole time. Like so I read a recent review, all, the record's only been out like a day today. But even before that, there some of the reviews, as people got advanced copies, one guy said he really loved it. The only thing that didn't work for him was the one with the, with the string, you know, the octet that comes in and with the alto clan. That, that, to him, was, you know, it just came out of nowhere, and it just he didn't like that. And to me, that's exactly the thing that makes it different from other trio records. And that's why I thought it was absolutely essential that I had something like that on there. So for, from an orchestrational composer standpoint, it's not just about playing. It's about writing also. And it's about trying to open people's ears to another sound. You know, and for me that was exciting, the idea that a string octet could come in out of nowhere in this piece and accompany the drum solo on the end of the piece. That's kind of, you don't really get to hear that that very often. <laughs> so to me that's exciting. Other people might think, well, why is he doing that? Why doesn't he just have the same format the whole time? Everybody's got his own idea, you know, so.
I think like many people, I first heard you um, with Chick Corea and the electric and acoustic bands. And then, I mean, you have since then played with everybody. And by everybody, I don't just mean jazz players. You've been in the pop world. You play in the classical and chamber music worlds. How do you maintain a a musical personality, uh, a, a musical individuality when you are in so many genres, in so many formats, with so many different instrumentations, and you're not even playing the same instrument all the yeah. time? I think you bring who you are with you always. You play who you are. It's all you can do, really. If you're trying to be someone else, it'll, it won't ring true, and people will hear that and feel that. But if you're yourself the whole time, and that's something that it's very kind of difficult to put into words, and, you know, a lot of people, when I was coming up, I have this mentor named Chris Paler out in the Bay Area, and he said, yeah, it's important for you to develop your own voice. And, and he was right, but I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, I think it takes time for that to happen. And it wasn't like I had a magic formula to do it. I just, I'm sort of a collection of all my influences that kind of all came together to make me, hopefully, uh, give me a voice that sounds like me when people hear me, I hope. That's the idea, you know. There are some things that kind of helped me in that regard, like the six-string bass was a nice vehicle, the electric bass. At the time, there weren't that many guys doing that, especially in a jazz context, in a real jazz way. And then the acoustic bass, trying to bring in a broad range of influences on the acoustic bass, including the classical thing. There are, in jazz, where some of us have been trained that way, not a lot of us keep doing that or keep cultivating that part of our playing because it's really time-consuming, the practicing. And, I, you know, I even, you know, when I went to college, my all my teachers thought I was going to be an orchestral bass player, you know. And I'd sort of backed into classical music. I was playing everything else before that, in a way, all the other styles. But when I went to college, I was a classical acoustic bass major, you know, double bass major. And then I, I bailed on it, like the whole idea of they wanted me to go right into like taking auditions and trying to get an orchestral gear, which I love that music, but I had already been doing all this other stuff too, an electric bass and all these different styles of music. So I even went away from it for a while. And then I came back like, much later on. And I've been working on it for a long time now. And I've, even like last year and the year before, I actually did my first concerts, like, you know, really playing a bass concerto in front of a audiences and that was really a thrill i did it in europe a lot and i did it here with the st louis symphony why the bass man you know when i was a kid i wanted to be like my brother my brother had the guitar and we grew up in brooklyn he had a guitar and he started studying with this guy who made you learn how to read music right away and do certain things i just wasn't i'm lefty and i play righty but the pick just felt really weird i just couldn't didn't feel natural and my right arm wasn't as loose as my left, and it took me a while to even get that loose for the things I have to do playing the bass. So the guitar wasn't working at all at the beginning. My brother sensed it and just said, well, you'd have to play the guitar. Actually, it would be great if you played a different instrument that we could play together. And So try the bass. You could play it with your fingers. So I had a little electric bass, you know, and that felt really good to me. And then after that, I still really, I mean, I had percussion. I had like bongos and maracas, and I would sing. And I sang a lot. We all sang in our family, too. I wanted to play the drums still, too, but my dad said no. So I remember shortly after that, you know, right before we moved to California in 1972, about, I still was hoping that I could play some drums, too, and he said no. I five kids. It's already crazy enough in this house without a drum set, so... 
No drums. So I wound up sticking with the bass, and then by the time I got a little bigger, and then I saw that it was introduced to the acoustic bass because it was in the band room, and I could finally look at one and, well, wow, you know. I, st- I had already been listening to jazz. I said, wow, that is great, and then I got into that. The, uh, the title track of this record, Remembrance, um, is a composition dedicated to Michael Brecker. Uh, yeah, yeah. Can you, can you talk about Michael Brecker? Well, we were really good friends, really close. And, um, you know, his house is three minutes from here. So um, he's the reason I moved up here north of the city. And we were really good friends, really good friends. Sometimes, you know, you just ring the doorbell and there he'd be, you know, we'd hang out. I'd make up some espresso. Sometime I'd be at the corner there at the bus stop waiting for, you know, seeing my kids off or waiting to pick them up. He'd drive by, we'd talk and hang out. You know, we just, we, we had been really close. I had been a huge fan of his growing up and then we got to know each other really well in the 80s. And I used to fly him out even when I lived in L.A. to play on my records. And uh, we just became really good friends and um, that's a tough loss. Musically and on a personal level. Um, and that's why, you know, there's been a bunch of these, like, on top of each other. Like, Bob Berg and I were close, too, and he died, of, you know, about four or five years ago now. That was weird, because that was like a freak accident in a snowstorm. He wasn't sick. It just happened, boom, one day. Um, then there's all these bass giants, you know, like, but Mike, like, you know, like Ray Brown and Percy Heath. Milt Hinton, all these guys, you know, crazy. So um, Mike, I mean, Mike came, he and his family, they came to the hospital when both times when my daughters were born, you know. So that's, you know, we used to hang out and talk a lot. And um, he was just an amazing person. It's hard to really, you know, make a summary of Mike in a, in a short time period like this but he was an incredible human being he was very generous he helped a lot of people he was very encouraging to young musicians he did a lot of stuff and he was incredible you know so so that's why On, uh, on my drive over here, I was listening to uh, the Joni Mitchell record "Shadows and Light" with Mike and you know, yeah, Jocko, Jocko and Don Elias and yeah, yeah. The whole Pat Feeney. And um, something that you were talking about about earlier about just uh, playing who you are in whatever context strikes me yeah. very as very applicable to Michael Brecker as well, who, who totally. like you played everywhere and was Michael Brecker, but he also was in service of whatever he was yeah, he was a part yeah. of. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, a lot of times I have no awareness. Because I did a lot of stuff when I lived in L.A. too. I recorded on a bunch of things that were more anonymous. But some of the other guys I remember, 
one of the other guys who worked out there, a guy named Neil Stubenhaus, he said, oh, I always know when it's you. And I never, and that was even like just on, you know, whether it was like a anonymous session for something, you know, whether well, he wasn't even looking at an album credit or whatever. It was just he heard it on a commercial or a thing, you know. So you don't really sometimes have an awareness of it, but other if other people are aware that it's you, that's kind of nice. Um, I think in jazz it's much easier. Like if it's my record, hopefully it's a lot easier to. Oh yeah, I, I see who that is. I mean, I'm I'm really pretty good at those blindfold kind of testing because I've listened a lot to a lot of records, so I have a pretty good awareness of certain guys' styles, especially bass players. You know, I can usually pick it out who it is. You know, um, it's nice if somebody else does that and hears your sound in there and goes, "Oh yeah, that's I know who that is." I mean, that's that's something that you can't really contrive or manufacture. It's, it's strange, you know, it's kind of an elusive thing, you know, when I teach students, you know, but, but in another way, it's, it's not all that elusive in, in that everybody's different, their physiology is different, their influences come together in different ways at different times of their lives, they have, you know, different size hands, you know, different instruments, it's not that far-fetched, it, but it, it is harder than it sounds to make happen, I think, I don't think anybody's got a, like a magic formula for that. <laughs> I don't. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I have. Uh, I got two more questions for you. I remember um, when I first ever saw you play on television, which I think was an electric band uh, gig. I don't even remember where it was, but um, I remember thinking, "Man, that bass looks huge." I wonder how big his hands are. And is that like was that a kind of a luck of the draw thing for you that you are a guy who decided to play an instrument with a very wide neck, and as it turned out. You were physically suited to do it. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, when I look at my hands, I don't really think that they're that big, but I guess I do have a, a fair amount of footprint there in my palm. You know, I don't really have super long fingers, but they're thick. And I didn't even, I remember being young and um, feeling like, you know, I'd see those pictures of like Stanley or Ron Carter and they, their fingers were like, you know, so long. And mine aren't incredibly long, but then I remember the first real classical master, this teacher I had named Charles Siani, he had big hands like, like this, just like mine, but they weren't really necessarily long fingers, but they were thick. And then I, as I learned the instrument, studying the instrument, a lot of times they would tell you, yeah, thick fingers are great. The more meat on the string, it helps you get a bigger sound, you know. So then I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe there's hope. Because I always thought, I would see these huge, tall guys, and I thought, well, that's the kind of hands you need to play the bass. And then, then later on, you know, you could see that People do it with all kind of different size hands. Like George Mraz is a shorter guy with small hands, and he's an incredible bass player. So it shows you that. Or or somebody like uh, like Chris McBride, he's he's more he's not real tall. He's more like my size, and he's strong and he's got thick fingers, but they're not ex they're not like super long like like Stanley or Ron or or some of the African bass players like Armin Sabaleko, who I used to collaborate with his hands were like you know he could wrap his fingers around my whole hand <laughs> it was hilarious this <laughs> is like whoa it's like rubber just incredible physical gift you know like amazing you know and finally you you've been uh, i mean you're still not even 50 but you've been doing this at a high level for decades now and uh what what makes it fun for you still what 
what makes it worth doing? Just keep learning stuff. You know, like right now I'm writing a book. I've written several books, you know, instructional books and stuff, and I'm writing this big book on arpeggios that I've been writing for like four or five years to hopefully make things more interesting for people to practice. Because like, from teaching, I've learned a lot. I've been teaching, you know, when Ron Carter left teaching at City College in uh, Harlem, I took over the job around, nine, around 2002 or something I started teaching there. It's made me uh, write a lot of exercises because I see different things that bass players are, that younger guys, there's certain things that everybody struggles with on the bass. And um, I taught for years. I taught, I mean, I was teaching when I was a teenager. So... But it's interesting, now being a little older, like, yeah, I'm going to turn 50 in December. So I've seen a lot of people and observed also the things that really challenge me on the instrument. So I'm excited to write this book because it helps me, too. It gives me some new stuff to practice. And uh, that's fun. I mean, that keeps it exciting because you can keep learning. I mean, I just got back from a trip with Roy Haynes. He's 84 years old, and he's still playing great. So that's encouraging to me that you can still keep playing and still grow, you know, way into your latter years, you know. And you might just be at the midpoint of your... Yeah, <laughs> let's hope career, so. Right? Yeah. Let's hope I get a lot better. <laughs> you know, and I mean that. A lot of times people say, what do you mean you're, you're practicing? I said, I, I am practicing. I mean, Ray Brown practiced every day until he died or something like that. He was always trying to get better. And I, I, that, I like to practice, actually. I enjoy it. You know, the feeling of actually working on something and then being able to do something you couldn't do before, and now you can do it, you know. It's a lot of work. I mean, I practice pretty hard, but it's fun, you know. When you see results anyway, <laughs> sometimes it's really <laughs> frustrating. But My guest is uh, John Patitucci, and uh, the new record on the Concord record label is called Remembrance. Uh, it's a trio album, uh, and it's fantastic. And I really thank you for uh, inviting me into your home and taking the time to be on the show. I, I really enjoyed it. It's great to have you. That's John Patitucci from his trio recording, Remembrance. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for the Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.